Jesus, Jesus, the rock that I stand on, the rock I stake my life on, that's who we're singing to. May you have all the praise and the glory this morning, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. You can be seated, and as you are seated, I want to thank you for being here, being a part of the service today, and as, uh, as we are in week, as we're in week number four of our Living the Good Life Sermon Series. Now, I say week number four. In reality, we're actually in week number 12. Uh, we've started back in the summer with the Beatitudes, the flipped character traits that Jesus teaches that lead us into living the good life that Jesus promises in John chapter 10. Those character traits, as we live them out, become the salt of the earth and the light of this world that gives glory to God and points everything to Him as He spreads His kingdom through us. You know, it's interesting. I've been in ministry now for over 25 years, and I've read lots of books on the church. I've read lots of books about how to make churches grow. I've attended conferences. I've listened to podcasts all on church leadership, church growth, evangelism, outreach. You can kind of go down the whole list, but over those 25 years. What I've found is there's lots of fads and styles that have come and gone. But as I've studied the Sermon on the Mount and studied as Jesus is taught here, he, he really does it differently. He does it differently. He didn't go with the fads. He just made disciples. That was all he did. He made disciples. He didn't look to impress with a big show. He, he didn't look to attract with some watered-down message. He had the hard conversations. As a matter of fact, he had those hard conversations in love, but he still had the conversations. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, this is the good life that I offer you. Here's the good life I have, but it's different than what the world has to say. See, the world's going to say, it's all about you. It's all about your feelings. It's all about what you want. But Jesus says, no, you won't be living the good life if you're living selfishly. If you're living a self-centered life, that is not the good life. If you're living in rebellion to what God has called you to do, that is not the good life. But he also says here in the Sermon on the Mount, right where we're hanging out at right now, these six statements that kind of go contrary to what was being taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, we're not just doing this good life as an external thing. It's got to be an internal thing. You may see everybody watching the outside, and you may polish it all up real nice, but on the inside, if your heart isn't right, you got a problem. As a matter of fact, he talks about that whole heart, and he says, sin isn't just about what we do, not that outside part. It truly is rooted in who we are, and we need a heart change. As we wrap up this section and these six different parts, really kind of that heart of the matter within the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to be jumping into prayer in October. And that prayer, as we begin to look at it, we're going to see what it should look like. See, Jesus talked a lot about prayer, and he modeled it for us as well. It wasn't flashy. It wasn't sexy. It wasn't one of the things that really is going to draw people in to the church. But what it was is he was making sure that we understood how important it truly is. I read a quote this week from a guy by the name of Alistair Begg. Maybe you've heard of him before, but he said this. He said, surely it cannot be that prayer was a necessity for Jesus and simply an unexplored activity for me. Jesus prayed, and we 
kind of counted as something maybe we do when we absolutely need it. Something else I saw this week, and I was pointed to an article in The Atlantic, and it was by a non-believer, and he was talking about prayer, and he was specifically talking more about the rosary and the rosary beads that they, they hold on to as, they, as uh, Catholics pray. But he said the rosary beads in prayer are like an AR-15. They're dangerous. And I started to kind of just process that. And that coming from a, a secular point of view, I, I see what they're saying. Because it's an attack. Prayer is an attack. But of course, as Christians, we need to understand, similar to a weapon, and I'm not going to get into politics here, but the power of a gun, it doesn't do anything without somebody actually using it. The power of prayer also doesn't do anything without somebody using it. And we're in a spiritual battle. We have to be on the attack. The reason why they feel attacked is because we're breaking down the, the decay of this world by being the salt of the earth. And that is where this prayer comes in at. And we're going to get more into that. I'm pretty excited actually about getting into that here shortly. But I don't want to get too, too far far ahead. So I'm just going to kind of summarize a little bit the rest of the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus starts to challenge the status quo. I shouldn't say starts. He's been challenging the whole Sermon on the Mount. But in it, he says, hey, where is your treasure? Where is your treasure? Where does your heart long for? What is the foundation that your life is built on? What do you live your life for and who do you give your life to? Those are questions that, that are deep questions that really they're not draw in a crowd sermon material. They're not the things that are going to be pulling in the people who just want to be entertained. He is challenging people on where they're at. And I find it very ironic that we started this sermon at the same time we started two services. I, I, I kind of thought, yeah, maybe this wasn't the best timing to do it. Maybe we should have done it a little bit lighter and fluffier so we could fill up the place. You know? But the truth of the matter is, is this not about a church's seating capacity? It's about a church's sending capacity, about people going and, and being challenged to be that salt and be that light. And as I looked at last week's sermon, I saw this like very clearly, that in it, we talked about murder. And we talked about what Jesus pointed out, that externally, it's really not that hard to keep that commandment. That in itself would be an easy way to draw people in. Oh yeah, I'm good enough. I can do this. But then Jesus goes, no, we're going to get deeper. We're going we're to get right down to the heart of the matter because really it is a matter of the heart. And at the heart of the matter for murder is anger. And guess what? Well, we all can say, well, I, well, I shouldn't say we all, hopefully all. Uh, we can all say we haven't murdered anybody. Have we all been angry at somebody? Oh Yeah. Absolutely, we're all guilty of that. So then this challenge becomes more difficult to hear and to apply. As a matter of fact, I was put right to the test after I left last week. Because Peyton didn't come to church last week. He wasn't feeling great. And uh, we were pretty sure it was an ear infection. So I, I got home from church and I was looking to just kind of chill out. Jiu-Jitsu was canceled. I'm like, good, I got my whole Sunday afternoon. I can just do a whole, whole lot of nothing until I had to come back for the, the special speaker of that night. And I'm like, I'm just going to do that. And Chris is like, hey, I got an appointment for Peyton. Can you, can you take him? And I said, oh, sure, I can do that. So I, I'm not going to specifically tell you the urgent care I went to because I'm not going to speak highly of them. So I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to do that to them right now. But it was about 1.30 at the appointment. Go down to this urgent care. And we waited. 
and we waited, and we were sitting there. And um, I think the first thing that kind of torqued me is when I walked in, uh, and I had to fill the paperwork for Peyton. It said gender preference. And I'm like, cross out the word preference. I'm like, nope, there's only two. Uh, and, and, and so I was a little bit torqued by that part of it all. And then I went back in the back, and we sat there. And I'm like, okay, it's just an ear infection. And the doctor comes in, and he's checking everything out. And he's looking in the ear, and he's, he's like, okay, it's a little bit red. I'm like, great, it's red. Let's move this thing along. Let's, let's go ahead and get on out of here. Because, oh, we got to take a COVID test, and we got to do a flu test and those kind of things. I say, okay, let's do that. Took the tests, and 45 minutes went by while we sat in the room. And I'm like, okay, my afternoon is slowly dwindling. And inside, you know, I was just a little bit torqued already, but I, I can't get angry because I just preached on it. And then 45 minutes goes by. So I go out, and, and in my calmest fashion, there's a nurse sitting out there. I'm like, is there any reason why we're still here? Uh, and she's like, oh, uh, uh, let me check. Oh, you, they're, they're still doing the discharge papers. We only have one doctor here, so we're a little bit, a little bit behind. I'm like, well, what's it take to get discharged? Because I can do it if you need me to. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to go. Like, okay, well, all right, we got your, uh, your medication and everything over at Walmart, so we are good to go. Sign this stuff, boom, we're out the door. Walmart calls about, about 20 minutes later. They're like, hey, we only have one of the two medications. You're going to have to go to Walgreens for the second one. It's like, oh, good. So I'm going to go to two different places for medications. That should be great. So I go, I um, go over to Walmart waiting Standing, lots of people in line, getting all the medications. And of course, I'm going tick, 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 tick. This was my afternoon that I was supposed to be able to just chill out. I'm standing in line at Walmart. Get up there and they're like, okay, we have this one. We sent the other one over to Walgreens. It should be ready for you. I'm like, okay, good. So I go over to Walgreens. And the guy's like, oh, uh, we don't have that. I said, well, they said they sent it over. And they start looking through and like, oh, yeah, here it is. Um, yeah, we didn't start that. Uh, we'll, we'll put it to the top of the thing. It'll be about 10 minutes. So you can just go wander around and, and we'll get it. And I'm like, you know what I don't want to do on my Sunday afternoon? Wander around Wal Walgreens. Because I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but Walgreens isn't a great store to wander in. I don't need hair care products, and that's pretty much, you know, the, the, the majority of it there. So in it all, I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll go wander around. It's just 10 minutes, right? So 10 minutes goes by. I go up to the counter, and the guy goes, oh, uh, I'm sorry. We don't have your insurance card on file, so we're going to need that before we can fill it. I said, so what have you been doing for the last 10 minutes? Of course, anger, holding it down because I just preached on it. And, and he's like, oh, yeah, um, yeah, we, we just, uh, we need to have that before we can even start to fill it. And I said, don't you guys have an intercom or something? You could have said, Mr. Sellers, we need your insurance card so we can fill this. And they're like, oh, yeah, sorry. So I was a little bit frustrated and said, it'll be another 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, great. I, I started to just get that, that, that little bit of frustration inside as I was, as I was standing there. And I kept thinking, oh, I just, I really wanted to have my Sunday afternoon. And now it's gone. Come back. We're going to do this thing at church. And I'm telling Corey about it. And uh, I said, yeah, I just, just got really frustrated. And I'm just, I think God was putting me to the test with anger today. And he goes, well, just wait till next week where you're talking about adultery and lust. So as we're doing that, we are now talking about adultery and lust. So if you have your Bibles with you, I would love for you to open to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be in four verses today, 27 through 30. Yes, we're going to be talking about adultery and lust. And just a little heads up for those of you who are here and those of you who are watching online. This will push the PG and PG-13 boundaries in some places. So just be aware of that because there might be some explaining to do after we're all done with our service today. So let's read, shall we? Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 27, it says these words. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. 
But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's pray that God would speak to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the opportunity to be able to share it. I pray that you open our hearts and open our minds to what you'd have to say. And not just open our hearts and open our minds to what you have to say, but be for challenged to respond that God we do that. We pray in your name. Amen. In Psalm chapter 24, verse 3, King David asks an important question. He says these words, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? That's a very valid question, and he answers that question in the next verse. In verse 4, he says, The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not appealed to what is false, and who has not sworn deceitfully. If I were to ask you, who perfectly fits the description of this verse. There's only one person that's ever walked the earth that can fit this, and that is Jesus. Jesus alone. But as we look at that, we also have to see this morning that we may not fit the descriptions that are in this verse, but the words should describe our pursuit of how we follow Christ. Our pursuit, pursuit as followers of Christ. The desire to be pure in heart. That should be who we are. The desire to have clean hands, to pledge our allegiance, to pledge our hearts, to pledge our lives to Christ. That is who we need to be, not chasing after the selfish desires of our heart. And as you take time, if you take time and you look, you're going to hear the words of Christ that are mentioned here in the Sermon on the Mount, echoed and repeated throughout the New Testament. As we look at this idea of, of sin, and especially the idea of adultery and lust, it's something that it's, it originates at the heart. And like anger to murder last week, this lust shows itself externally with the eyes and with the hands. And so as we begin to look at that, we have to look at the heart. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the things we've talked about with the heart, a lot of times we bring up that verse from Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. So I want to bring it up again to you and share. It says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Well, I believe that what Jesus does here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, is he shows us just how true that statement is. The truth of the matter is that we, we being us now, as well as people throughout history, we tend to think of sin as what we do. But Jesus goes deeper. And he makes it much clearer that sin isn't just what we do. It truly is rooted in who we are. It is at the very heart. We often sin with our eyes. We often sin with our hands. But they're just the tools used by a deceitful, sinful, and lustful heart. Jesus, in this part of the Sermon on the Mount, he says, hey, I want you to look deeper. I want you to look deeper. I want you to look past the external on how to overcome and defeat sin. He says the way to do that is you have to, you must have a heart change. We can't just try harder on the inside, on the outside. It has to come from within. It has to come. That, that, that change has to come from being, as he talks about in the Beatitudes, being poor in spirit, mourning over that sin. When we realize we can't do it on our own and we turn our lives over to God. 
Now, overcoming and defeating sin. And just the topic of sin in itself, I can tell you it's an uncomfortable topic. It's an uncomfortable topic. It's not one that's, that, that is encouraged in church growth seminars. Hey, make sure you really point out everybody's faults. They love that. They love to be challenged on that. that. That's not where we sit at. A lot of churches actually avoid it. Oftentimes, we don't even take sin seriously. We will not confront sin in our own lives, and we definitely don't confront sin in somebody else's life because that's a problem. That gets in the way of who we think we are, who we need to be. But here's the thing. We need to. We need to take sin seriously because God takes sin seriously. Well, God takes sin seriously. You know how we know that he takes sin seriously? He was willing to give up his son to defeat sin. His one and only son came and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. And he crushed sin and he defeated death by giving us the perfect sacrifice. But it cost him dearly. That's how serious he takes sin. Why would he take it so seriously? The answer is because sin kills. It leads to hell. We have to stop lessening it. We definitely have to stop compromising with it. We have to stop flirting with it. We have to stop accepting it. And we have to stop loving it. And we need to instead, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and if you're going to underline something, that's it. By the power of the Holy Spirit, we have to hate that sin, and we have to crush it in our lives. I love what John Owen quotes as he says this. He says, be killing sin, or sin be killing you. And we can change that and make it more specific with the word lust. Be killing lust or lust will be killing you. But how do we do it? Well, in our four verses here, Jesus gives us a package deal. A package deal to kill lust in our lives. First is this. Really, it breaks down to these three. Guard your heart, protect your eyes, and watch your hands. Guard your heart, protect your eyes, and watch your hands. First one, guard your heart. Jesus begins this part of the passage the same way that he began last week's with those words, you have heard it said before. You have heard it said by your ancestors. Similar to last week, then he quotes a commandment. Last week was commandment number six. Today is commandment number seven. Do not commit adultery. That direction is plain and simple. Just like murder's direction last week was plain and simple, it's the same. A person is not to have sexual relations with somebody who is not their spouse. Plain, simple, period. The punishment, if you broke that commandment, it was severe. It was severe. The sin of adultery was actually punishable by death, which you see in the book of John when the, when the woman caught in adultery, they all picked up stones and, and Jesus forgave her of her sins. I mean, it was something that was even practiced at that point in time. The real question is, it's a joker question. Why so serious? Why so Serious. I mean, in today's day and age, it's glorified on TV. It's glorified in the movies. You're going to read about it. You're going to see it. You're going to hear it. And they don't make any big deal about it. Why so serious? I'm going to borrow from a, a writer, pastor, blogger from Toronto named Tim Chalice. He actually wrote an article that was called Six Reasons Why Adultery is Very Serious. I'm like, perfect. I'll use that to answer the question, why so serious? So let me tell you what he says. He says this, Adultery is a serious matter in the mind and heart of the God who created sex and marriage and who put wise boundaries on them both. Now we look at wise boundaries. We talked about a couple of weeks ago. The Ten Commandments and the things that God gives us as rules are not there to punish us. They're there like guardrails to keep us from driving off into the ditch. And he says right here, 
This is why it's serious, because adultery will lead you into the ditch. Here's the six reasons. Number one is adultery is turning away from a promise. Adultery is turning away from a promise. Anytime I perform a wedding, I want to make sure the people that I'm performing the wedding for, as well as those who are in attendance, know this. A promise is being made before these two people and God. But not just these two people and God, but these two people and the people who are watching. I truly believe people invite people to a wedding to hold them accountable. At least that should be the reason behind it. These are your friends, these are your family who care enough about you to hold you accountable because you are making a promise that you cannot turn away from. He says adultery is turning away from that promise. The second thing he says is adultery takes the adulterer from security to chaos. And turning away from the promise, you enter in a life of divided loyalties. You have a divided life. You have divided families. You have divided memories. It's splitting everything up as adultery comes into the picture from security to chaos. The third thing is, is adultery is secretive and dishonest. It's secretive and dishonest. You know why? It has to be. It has to be. Nobody wants to announce they're breaking a promise. Like any sin, adultery loves the darkness and stays there as long as it can. I mean, think about this. When do you get a wedding announcement from somebody? Six months in advance. When do you get an adultery announcement? That's right, never. Because we want to keep it secret. We don't want people to know. We want to keep it hush-hush. The fourth thing he put was adultery destroys the adulterer. It ruins character. It eats away at integrity. It ruins your life. I'm just going to tell you this, and this might be part of the PG-13 part. I'm not going to get into too many details, but if you follow the sports scene, you'll know uh, an event happened this week with a, uh, the rookie punter from the Buffalo Bills. And uh, he uh, was from San Diego State, uh, was going to make the team, was going to make lots of money, was going to do, and I say the word was because this last week he was actually charged with other gentlemen, and I use the word gentlemen obviously loosely here, um, for taking advantage of a 17-year-old girl at a party. And a civil suit was filed by the 17-year-old girl and her father, which then brought the spotlight onto this punter who, again, was going to make the team and got released yesterday because of decisions that he made. Now he came out and said, uh, none of that's true, so on and so forth. I'll let the courts deal with that. But the truth of the matter is, when you put yourself in a situation and that comes up, it will destroy you. It ruins your character, it ruins your integrity, and it will ruin your life. Adultery also damages society. I believe that many of the effects of what we see today are from generations of adultery, especially from about the 60s on for us, really when, when the sexual revolution happened, a lot more freedom happened, all the different things kind of played into where we had fatherless homes, we had single parents trying to raise men and yet raise young women, and in it, anger and spite and hatred developed in those kids towards all the people, and because of it all, we're generations into it now. We have to understand that sin and our sin, especially our lusts and adultery, does not just affect us. There are ripple effects. Which leads to the last one. Adultery always hurts children. It hurts children. When chaos and conflict and disunity enter into a home, kids pay a bigger price than most any of us could ever understand. I have seen it firsthand as a pastor. The devastation and, and and the hurt. I, I've seen it as a chaplain, just being 
into a police call with people that have nothing to do with church at all, but you see the devastation firsthand. And most of all, I've seen it as a friend. I've seen the devastation tear apart family. And there's no doubt in my mind that adultery is a serious, crushing act. Unfortunately, as I said, even as a friend, I've seen it far too often. I've seen it far too often in people that I know. And probably one of the prime examples is probably one of my best friends in my teens and into my young 20s. A guy that was just a little bit ahead of me in age, but uh, was married. He was the example for a marriage. He was a father. He was an example for a father. Um, he was a strong believer. He was an example for that for me. Um, we used to hold each other accountable by giving each other rib shots. Because if you said something that was out of line, it was rib shot tying. And it hurt. You know, if you've ever been punching the ribs and the kidney shots right there, we would do it to hold each other accountable. After I'd moved here, uh, we'd lived here for a little while. Um, got a call from his wife and he said or she said that, that he had had an affair on her. I immediately got in the car I drove back over to Phoenix and I met him after work. I said dude what? what? I, I was broken. I was hurt. And he continued on that relationship anyway um, leaving a trail of destruction in his path. Uh, his, his four kids are like my nieces and nephews. His oldest daughter um, who has four kids of her own now, has not talked to him in years because of it. His, his youngest, or her youngest child, his youngest grandchild, has never met him because she refuses. The, the, the devastation that is there and the ripple effects that happen, all because of a temporary pleasure, has had now a long-term effect. It's hurtful. And that's just Adultery. And I say it's just adultery because that's only the first verse that Jesus is talking about here. Because the next verse, he says, but I tell you, but I tell you, I'm going to twist, and I'm not going to twist, I'm going to take the twisted words of the scribes and Pharisees and we're going to go deeper. They're just talking about the external. We're going to go into the internal. We're going to go into the heart. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus lays it out. It's the unavoidable, undeniable truth, the heart of the matter, that sin is a matter of the heart. It's not about the external. We have to guard our hearts. He says, hey, do you hide lust in your heart but consider yourself righteous because you've never acted out on that, never, never followed through with that? If so, you've missed it. See, adultery like murder is not limited to just the acts. It's those long looks. It's the gazes. It's the thoughts that objectify a person that you're not married to. It's lessening them to something you can selfishly use. It's making the person who is created in the image of God into an object or a thing to be exploited. To, to satisfy your lustful desires. And when that hunger and thirst for that lust is quenched, you throw that object aside and you chase after something else. Most of us probably know that from going through high school and college and have seen that or maybe experienced that. We have to be aware. We have to be on guard. We have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our minds. We have to, we have to guard against these lustful desires. Why? Because it starts in the heart. And we have to guard that heart. We have to guard our heart. And not only that, we have to protect our eyes and watch our hands. 
I'm going to start with the eyes because you can have lust in your heart without eyes, but I'll tell you what, it's a whole lot easier when you have eyes, isn't it? It, it brings it to the forefront, but I told you up front, this is a package deal. The heart, the eyes, the hands, that they work together. They're intimately related. That's why Jesus drops this over-exaggerated, intentional, powerful, colorful overstatement of cutting off your hands and plucking out your eyes. I do want to let you know right here, right now, it is not literal. I say that because there have been church leaders and fathers throughout history that have taken extreme measures to physically harm themselves and cut off certain body parts. I won't go further than PG-13. They've cut off certain body parts and then came to realize they still have lust issues because it's not a matter of external. It's a matter of the heart. And so he begins to say these in hyperbole. This extreme exaggeration, in case you don't know what hyperbole is, it's that over-exaggeration. It's like when you say, well, everybody knows that. Everybody doesn't really know it. You're just trying to make a point. This backpack weighs a ton. Doesn't actually weigh a ton, but you're just trying to make a point. Jesus here is trying to make a point. He's trying to get their attention. He makes an extreme statement because there is extreme consequences that come from sin. Sin is a dead-end road. I'm not sure if you ever heard the story on how Eskimos catch wolves. It's a story I remember hearing when I was in high school. Then again, I used as a youth pastor. But it goes something like this. Tradition has it that Eskimos would catch wolves by taking a knife. And they would cover that knife in some sort of animal blood. Again, PG-13, I apologize. So uh, they would do layers and layers of blood on a knife to the place where it became just a, a blood popsicle more or less. And what they would do is they would take that knife and they would know or they'd find out where the wolves were hanging out at. They'd find droppings, they'd find tracking, you know, whatever it might be. And they put that blade up, handle down in the snow. Well, the nose of a wolf would pick up the smell of blood and they would go and they'd begin to enjoy that blood popsicle. And they would continue to lick it. Well, two things would be happening. One, the, the tongue would grow numb from the cold. But two, they would be getting the layers of the animal blood off to the place where they didn't realize the blade was now exposed. And the blade would begin to slice the tongue every lick they took. Not realizing it, tasting their own blood, the warmth and the deliciousness of their own blood, they would continue to go after it, re uh, not realizing it was actually killing them in the process. And they would bleed out because of their insatiable desire for something that was killing them. The truth of the matter is, we have the same problem. James writes about it in James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It says, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. That's us. We are that wolf. We think somehow lust and even the action of lust, adultery, is going to deliver what it promises. We think that it will make us happy. The world will tell you it will make you happy. Like everything else, they say, live your best life now. Don't wait. Don't worry about the consequences. Don't worry about the long-term effects. How many things are going on in this world that people need to make a decision now that is going to affect the rest of their future and they're not thinking about the rest of their future? 
Isn't it constant with our children right now? Things are throwing at them. Things are trying to shove down their throats. It's over and over and over again. But the thing is, is Jesus says, that's not going to make you happy. That is not the good life. That's going to lead you to hell. As a matter of fact, he says, you need to do whatever it takes to deal with that sinful lust. That's why he says these words in verse 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin. Some translations say causes you to stumble. Gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Again, Jesus isn't supporting self-inflicting injuries here as a way to avoid sin. He's not saying pluck out your right eye because he's obviously got a left eye. He's not saying cut off your right hand because obviously you have a left hand. What he's saying though is this. In the Jewish custom and even still today, your right eye and your right hand were of supreme value. If you cut off your right hand, you might have, unless you're a lefty, which that's limited, you're going to have more difficulty in doing things. If you take out your right eye, if you're right-handed, once again, you're going to be right-eye dominant, that's going to be a problem. So what he is actually saying here is he's saying, if there's something that is keeping you from living with God, living for God, it's better to be without that thing that you might find of supreme value than to go to hell. It's better to experience temporary loss than eternal loss. He's actually saying, I want you to sever whatever thing is keeping you from Jesus from your life. That thing that might be driving the lust. And the problem is, is that it is everywhere today. It is throughout our culture. I love cell phones. I think they're great. I love the technology that comes into it. But I'll tell you, that's like just having a demon in your pocket at the same time. There's a lot of things that the world can shove in through what we carry around with us everywhere we go. The amount of things that can draw us away from Christ that are in there. The amount of things that, that we hand over to our kids with unfiltered access to whatever's on there. And generally, we're not paying that close of attention to them because we're busy doing our own thing. Go to a restaurant. Just watch. When you go into a restaurant, see how many kids are sitting and just staring at a phone instead of having a real conversation with their parents. Seeing with headphones on and all the things, and nobody actually knows what they're watching. Even if it's something off of some child thing, we know that the children's programming is now being indoctrinated with all kinds of things and all kinds of messages. It's painful to watch. And as we see it, can we not have it? Can you go back to a flip phone and using T9 again? Does anybody know what T9 is? Remember that? Can we do that? Oh, but that makes my life so much more difficult. That's what Jesus is talking about. It's okay to cut off the things that might make your life a little bit more difficult than to lose heaven because you are not living for the kingdom of God. You've never truly given yourself over to Christ. That is what he's trying to say here. If you have a problem with something, get rid of it. I mean, the stakes are high. We have to ask ourselves an honest question. What are we willing to give up? What are you willing to give your life for? What are you willing to give your life to? As we sang that last song, the yesterday, today, and forever, the word said, Jesus, Jesus, the rock that I stand on, I stake my life on. Do we stake our life on Jesus? 
Did those words actually resonate or do we just sing them? That is a struggle that we have. I mean, there's a seriousness we already broke down that comes from adultery, but it also comes from lust. Why would anyone give up so much for so little? If you look from the spiritual perspective, why would anybody give up heaven for something so little? Is there anything worth holding on to to give up heaven? Is there anything worth holding on to for going to hell? We have to ask ourselves that question. Anything that is morally or spiritually trapping you, those things are going to cause us to fall into sin or stay in sin. They should be eliminated as quickly as possible. I mean, I don't know what your particular area of temptation might be, but whatever it is, can you set it aside to live a holy life? The answer is yes, you can. The next question is, is will you? Obviously, getting rid of harmful influences isn't going to change a corrupt heart. That's just that external thing. And I don't want to focus only merely on the external thing. But if we do it externally, it may be revealing what truly is in our heart. If we can't do it, what's in your heart? If you already have an adulterous heart, yeah, you're going to have an adulterous relationship on the outside. But the act of voluntarily forsaking whatever's harmful, harmful inside of you and say, I can't have it, it reflects a heart that actually hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Those outward actions have to be generated by a heart that's been changed. It goes back to that heart change. Jesus is teaching here. He, he is once again saying, you can't become righteous by rules and regulations. He told that. He's calling out the Pharisees and the scribes on that. He says, you guys are self-righteous, but you're self-righteous because you lowered the bar. How many churches have lowered the bar in the same way? Jesus says, no, we can't do that. Since the beginning, he said the first step towards true righteousness is to be poor in spirit and then to mourn over your sin. If you don't do that, you can't truly turn your life over to Christ. Do you recognize your sinfulness and that your only hope is in Christ? Because that's the first step in becoming a follower of his. You can't be holy and you can't please God by just trying to do the external. He has to work on the internal. We have to place our hope and our trust in Christ alone to change your heart. A true Christian thirsts after righteousness, and they desire that pure heart. A true Christian is concerned about both the inward as well as the outward. So my question is, is this. Do you profess to know Jesus Christ? My guess is your answer is yes. But if it is, consider who you want to please in your life. Is it yourself or is it God? Is it yourself or is it God? See, the answer to that question will determine what you desire or lust after. If you have a strong desire to be righteous, then you're going to walk with Christ. And you're going to confess your sins as you are convicted in the things that you do. And you are going to thank Him for His forgiveness and His grace and His mercy. But if you have a strong desire to please yourself, your mind, your emotions, and your flesh, and your feelings, then you're going to judge yourself on a false standard. A standard that you set up that man set up and you're going to consider yourself self-righteous and you're going to consider yourself good enough and when you meet Jesus he's going to say sorry there's no negotiation for obedience we don't get to negotiate on this I already laid it down and you chose not to so what do we do what do we do what do we do if we want to walk this path of purity well a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson if you have a right now media he has a great study on Sermon on the Mount and many other things but he actually uh, has a commentary in the Sermon on the Mount that I read 
And he wrote down four things that we can do. And I'm just going to share with you, and then I'll expand on them for myself. And it says, the first thing he put was this. Realize where yielding to sinful lust will lead you. If you give in to sinful lust, where is it going to lead you? What did Jesus say? It's going to lead you to hell. It's going to lead you away from God and to hell. Have that in your mind. Is it worth it? Is whatever you are chasing after worth it? Second thing he says is deal with the real cause of your sin. You know what the real cause of our sin and our real cause of our lust is? It's idolatry. We are putting ourselves first. That is a plain, simple fact of it all. What is it in your life that you're putting in the place of God? What God substitute do you have that you desire more than anything instead of God? Third thing he says this. Act decisively, immediately, even if it must be painful. Again, obedience cannot be negotiated. We can't, eh, well, I think I can't cut it out. Get rid of it. Now is always the right time to do the right thing. Fourth and final thing, realize your lust is not the whole of your life, even the main or the most important part of your life. Think and understand what you gain by abandoning that thing that's becoming you and, between you and God. You get Christ when you abandon you get that good life that Christ promises. We get heaven thrown in as a bonus. Sin, and it is cruel. And it is a slave driver. As a matter of fact, sin will put us into bondage, and lust is probably one of its favorite tools to use. It puts us into bondage. But if you think about what Jesus said in John chapter 8, I came to set you free. The truth, he is the truth, will set you free. He doesn't want you to be in bondage. He came to rescue you. So we need to treasure him above all else. What you gain will put to shame what you give up. When you're in Christ, our desires change because we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We have the power to guard our heart from temptation. When we're drawn to Christ, our other desires will lose their draw. They'll lose their draw. When our heart is full of Christ, there is no room for anything else. So my challenge to you today is desire Christ. Desire his ways and pursue after him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are. And thank you for what you continue to do and the way you continue to speak and the way you continue to guide and direct. And God, I know <laughs> even in preparing this, it's not easy. It's not easy to hear. It's not easy to see. It's not easy to apply. But God, it's what you've called us to. You've called us to something greater. Not to live for the fleshly desires of this world that are temporary, that are full of empty promises, but instead, God, to live for you. To live for you in a way that glorifies you and grows your kingdom. That we can be the salt of the earth and the light of this world. That we can reflect you and show you to a world that is in desperate need. God, I know there are people in here, I know the people that are watching online, that this is a struggle. Because we're humans. We have a natural bent towards rebellion, and that rebellion says, I'm going to make myself first. I pray today, God, that as you are speaking to our hearts, that not only do we listen, but we also respond. We pray in your name. Amen.